Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Mark 9, verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied round his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Paul, thank you very much. Uh, welcome to you all. Uh, let me have my welcome to that of, uh, of Pete's earlier. Do keep your Bibles open. We're looking through uh, these uh, uh, chapters, uh, chapters 9 and 10 of Mark's Gospel, right through this term. And uh, we're now, uh, obviously, at this uh, passage uh, that uh, we've just had read for us. Uh, Peter's already prayed for us. So um, let me bring you... Um, some more news. We've already had some news uh, this morning, some good news. This is uh, not such good news, although in some ways it's not news at all. Church attendance figures across the UK continue to decline. That's not news for you. You, you know that. Of course, there are some wonderful exceptions. There's some good news within that, um, not least of all across our own network of churches that we call Renew South Yorkshire. 
Um, wonderfully, almost all the churches in that network are growing. Um, and as a group, we expect to plant two more churches uh, this year. So uh, that, that is encouraging. But um, you know, when you look at this news, when you look at the, the facts, it doesn't matter how you look at it as a whole, uh, we can't exactly shout for joy. 1.2 million people in the region, uh, the region uh, Doncaster, Sheffield, um, Barnsley, uh, Rotherham, and all the villages in between, 1.2 million people in the region, less than 12,000 attending a Church of England church. Well, you can do the sums. What's that? Un- under 1%. Uh, no matter how you look at it, our battle to win souls is not um, hugely advancing. There's an understatement for the day. And so uh, in these difficult days, you'd have thought that gospel-minded churches and church leaders would be ready to do everything and anything to work together to ensure that we make all the progress possible. But sadly, that is not the story. And as we come to the end of Mark chapter 9, we see it's an age-old problem. Now look what John says to Jesus in verse 38. Teacher, John said, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. If you like taking headings, uh, here's the first um, heading uh, today. In Jesus' name, encourage gospel ministry, whoever is doing it. Before we look at the detail, uh, note the link with the previous verse that we looked at last week. Jesus said in verse 37, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. That's the phrase to note, in my name. And it comes again, we've just uh, seen it in verse 38, it comes again in verse 39 and verse 41. And that's what links these sections, this section together. In verse 37, Jesus said, welcome people in my name And then in verse 38, John says, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. We told him to stop. Not exactly welcoming, do you not think? In verse 38, the original text actually says, John answered. So this is kind of John's response to what Jesus has just been teaching the disciples. More than that, it seems that John is the disciples' spokesman. He says, we, in verse 38, you see it there. And so it seems all the disciples are of a mind that stopping this man from exercising demons was the right course of action. Jesus has said, welcome people. He said, oh, we stopped this person from doing any of this work. And uh, although they think it was the right course of action, Jesus clearly doesn't think it was. Verse 39, do not stop him. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name, there's the phrase again, no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Jesus says, this man's on our side. He says, this man's been fighting the dark forces of evil from the underworld. He's doing it in my name. That is, he's relying on me to do this work. Why would you stop him? And the answer to that question is pride and jealousy and insecurity. You might say to me, how do you get that from this text? Well, it was there last week. If you were here last week, you'll remember the disciples had this wildly overinflated view of themselves. All of them did. Do you remember back in verse 34, we saw this last week, they were arguing about who was the greatest amongst them. They had their own leadership contest. All 12 candidates thought they were miles ahead of the other 11. Their egos were so big, there was barely room on the stage for all the others And here's the thing, when you think so highly of yourself, when you think you are the greatest, you think you have the right to control everyone else. And when you do think you're great and you ought to be at the top of the pile, 
When you see other people doing things better than you can, they become a real threat to you and you want to put them down. Now that's what this man, this man who was driving out demons, that's what this man was to the disciples. They, they see him as a threat. He's been successfully driving out demons. And if you were here two weeks ago, you'll understand exactly why that bothered the disciples and why they wanted to stop him. Do you remember earlier in the, in the, in the chapter, in verses 14 to 29, the disciples had failed miserably in their attempt to drive out an evil spirit from a demon-possessed boy. So no wonder this man seemed to pose such a threat to them. Here's a bloke who's not only been able to do what they couldn't do, but he's done it repeatedly. Verse 38 we saw a man driving out demons, plural, in your name. So the disciples see this bloke as a threat because he showed up their inadequacies and their failure. Uh, please, that wasn't his intention. No, there was no power play on his part, and not even a hint of him trying to muscle his way into leadership or, or usurp the disciples' position alongside Jesus. He's just getting on with gospel ministry. He's battling against the dark forces of evil in this world. The disciples should have rejoiced in this man's work. You'd expect them to be patting him on the back, saying, well done, brother, keep going. You're doing a terrific work. We're praying for you. But no, they're so desperate to be seen as the greatest that when anyone else came along doing a, a grand job, they saw him as a threat and someone who needed to be removed. So verse 38, we told him to stop. And desperately, this is not just a problem for the disciples back then. The history of the Christian church is littered with leaders who've wanted to be the greatest. And as a result, have had this controlling approach to leadership that's put others down and shut them up. It's desperate. This man was driving out demons. He, he was, as we say, on the side of the angels. He was doing gospel ministry in the name of Jesus. He was making inroads, inroads into defeating the enemy. Suddenly, the gospel's advancing and honestly, when you're at war against a powerful adversary, you, you need to work with all the allies you can get. But a thirst for greatness and a desperate desire for recognition is a destructive force that can wreck gospel ministry. It causes division and stops people working together. We can see it in church leaders today. People who, who see other churches growing and thriving and make snide remarks about it find fault in the other churches, even delight when things go wrong for other churches. If these people have any power or influence, they might even stop gospel advance if they can. I've seen it recently, a, a church leader with significant influence making it very uncomfortable for another church that is expanding. And of course it can happen within a church family. I'm thrilled and relieved that we don't have this here. I, I don't think we do. I don't think I'm closing my eyes to it. But you can imagine the scenario. One aspect of the work growing and flourishing. Another struggling and limping along. And the person who's heading up the struggling ministry finding reasons to criticize the burgeoning work. Let's be sure that we're never like that either internally or towards other churches. This is one reason, there's lots of reasons, but this is one reason why I'm so committed to the Renew South Yorkshire initiative. Working with other churches, a network of churches across the region, because we're not going to win South Yorkshire on our own. I'd be rather proud to think we, we could do that. We need to work together. So we want to rejoice in the work of other churches. Praise God every time we see church growth, every time we see another church planted. And we need to be testing our hearts on this. 
pride and power and, and, and wanting control is an insidious thing, so we, we have to be on our guard against it. It is serious in Christian leadership, but look, it can be a problem for anyone and for all of us. We need to be dealing with pride. See how destructive pride is. Never mind just in leadership. Just see how destructive it is. When you and I are proud, we are far more likely to put others down. Either because we think we're great and and we have the right to push people around that they're nothing compared to us, so we don't treat them properly, or because we see them as, as a threat. You know, when you're proud, you, you, you want to get to the top of the tree, and if these people are coming along and challenging us, well, I, I need to put them down, squash them. And pride is horrible. And there's one solution to the heart problem of pride, and that is to go to the cross of Christ. It's where the section began. This won't be new to you if you were here last week, but we do need to see it again. Uh, Do you remember back in uh, verse 31, Jesus, the Son of Man, taught that he would die. The the Son of Man, the one who, who really is the greatest, the greatest in the entire universe, the one who really does have power and authority, total power, all authority over everything. That one, that Son of Man, made himself nothing and served us by dying on a cross in order to save us. The Great One shows us not only how we should live, but actually stoop low to deal with the fact that we are proud. See, the cross deals with pride because as I look at the cross, I realize I'm not great. When I look at the cross, I realize I'm a sinner who needs forgiveness. Pete helped us with that at the beginning of the service. We sung the song of how great God is and we needed to confess that we're not like we should be. Coming to the cross, you see, changes how I think of myself. At the cross, I can't think of myself as great anymore. I realize I'm a terrible sinner, helpless and in need of rescue. There's no place for pride when I'm standing by the cross. And when I kill pride in my heart and foster humility, then I'm going to treat others as I should. I won't look down on you anymore, he says from this rather high, exalted position. I'll be ready to serve you rather than boss you around. And when I'm serving you and no longer striving to be the greatest, I won't see you as a threat. If you do things that are great, I'll I'll applaud it. Certainly won't need to put you down and squash you. Now look, it's getting that clear in my head that changes my heart and enables me to genuinely and enthusiastically welcome anyone and everyone in Jesus' name. See, that's where this began. That's what Jesus said we should be about in verse 37. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. We've got to be people who welcome. But you see, you see the detail in that, in that verse, in verse 37. When we welcome a little one, when we welcome someone else, uh, someone who we might think of as smaller than us, when we welcome somebody in Jesus' name, another Christian, we welcome God the Father. We welcome Jesus and God the Father, the one who sent Jesus. When we welcome other Christians, we are welcoming God. Now the flip side of this, and we'll come back to this in a moment, but the flip side of this is that to fail to welcome a fellow believer is actually to fail to welcome God. To reject another Christian is then to reject God. We'll see why that's so important in a moment. 
For now, let's see how all this should change the way we live. Pride and thinking highly of ourselves and wanting to be first ruins relationships. It wrecks lives. And when it is unchecked in Christian leaders, it hinders gospel ministry, as we've already seen. So we have a choice. We can be jealous of those who do things better than us, or we can work hard on having a right view of ourselves and rejoice when we see others flourishing. I don't mind telling you, it's, a, it's an issue that I, I pray about constantly in my own life. In my daily prayer time, I regularly, not every day, but regularly, I, as it were, stand before the cross and remind myself that I am not great, that I'm a rebellious sinner in need of forgiveness and rescue. You see, it is impossible if I do that regularly for me to keep thinking that I'm fantastic. I have a set of, of daily prayers that I, I turn to, well, almost every day, but I certainly come to them again and again, uh, three or four times a week. And some of them go like this on this issue. Help me to stop comparing myself with others, either feeling jealous or superior. Take, me, take from me the desire to be noticed or praised by others and help me instead to desire your affirmation, approval and acceptance. Help me to honour and love others in ministry and not compete with them. I need to keep praying those kind of prayers because it's a problem for me. But if we get our hearts right on this, it is life-changing. Then we'll genuinely rejoice when others are successful. We won't feel threatened by them. May we as a church family rejoice when we hear of other churches growing when the church down the road is growing faster than us. Let's be pleased. We're on the same side, aren't we? Now, now, of course, this is not to say that we should be theologically naive or abandon discernment. Much of the New Testament is written to correct false teaching and wrong living and bad theology. So this is not to say that we should never question anything that's going on in another church. Look, we've got to face the facts. There are a lot of churches that set themselves up at churches but are no longer teaching the gospel. So this doesn't say you must never criticize anybody. But that's not the issue here, is it? The problem Jesus is addressing here is of disciples who think they're great and want to be acknowledged as the greatest and as a result are jealous and controlling and trying to stop the work of the kingdom. So verse 39, Jesus says, don't stop gospel ministry. Verse 40, he says, whoever is not against us is for us. They're on the same side. They're fighting the same battles. And then he says in verse 41, even if someone does seemingly insignificant acts of kindness, you are to applaud them. Look at verse 41. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. Any Christian who shows you even the slightest and most basic act of kindness just because you're a Christian is doing a great thing. Don't despise the small gestures of other Christians. Certainly don't try to stop the kingdom work they do. <clears throat> so far then, we've seen how pride and a longing to be great wrecks gospel ministry. But that's not the only problem. In fact, there is a bigger problem. Pride can have a terrible impact on the salvation of other people and, indeed, on ourselves. Pride is so dangerous that Jesus issues an incredibly strong warning in the verses that follow. We come to our second point. 
Little ones, welcome everyone with gospel generosity, whoever they are, verses 42 to 48. Now, as we come to this section, um, the authors of this book called Dig Deeper say that if, if this section were to be made into a film, it would have an 18 certificate. And if it were to be shown on TV, the announcer would warn us of strong language and violence of a graphic nature. I mean, this is terrifying. Before we look at the detail, though, note how this section links with the previous teaching of Jesus. Again, do you remember in verses 36 and 37, Jesus took a little child, gave this little child a hug and said, verse 37, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And see the link in verse 42. If anyone causes one of these, here's the word, little ones who believe in me to sin. Now that shows what I was hinting at last week. Jesus, when he spoke in verses 36 and 37 and took this little child to himself, was not just talking about welcoming children, but embracing little people. These are not just people who only have a height of five foot six and a half like me and smaller, but of course embracing little people, what we might call the nobodies of this world, those who have no status in the world's eyes. Little ones who are are Christians who we might be tempted to see as insignificant. No, says Jesus, they are significant. They're my children, I love them. And here's the big issue. If in our pride we think we're great and we'll be tempted to see everyone else as insignificant compared to us, we won't welcome them as we should. That, says Jesus, is terrible. See, when we think like that, when we don't welcome them, we're not welcoming God. And when we don't embrace people and welcome them as we should, we can have a terrible impact on them and their salvation. See, this is precisely what's been going on with the disciples, with this bloke who's been driving out demons. The disciples thought they could throw their weight around, demand that he stops doing what he's doing, And that kind of heavy-handed, overbearing leadership can cause people to give up following Jesus. So, verse 42, Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, that is the sin of no longer following Jesus. If anyone causes that to happen, woe betide them, he says. It's not hard to imagine how that could happen. The disciples ordered this bloke to stop driving out demons. As a result, he would be deeply discouraged. And he may even thought that because this came from the disciples, it was a directive from Jesus himself. And so confused and downhearted, he drifts away and then stops following Jesus altogether. Sadly, I've seen it on more than one occasion. Proud Christian leaders causing people to walk away from following Jesus. Think of a man I met at a wedding. Uh, I sat next to him at the reception. I'd, I'd taken the wedding, and so he knew I was the vicar. I always feel sorry for people who get sort of uh, sitting next to me for the whole of the, you know, two or three hours, and they've, they've got the vicar sitting next to them. Oh, dear, poor them. Anyway, that was his lot. I didn't uh, do the table plan. I'm sitting next to him, and I, because he knew I was a Christian, he knew I was a vicar, I, I asked him what he thought of Jesus. Oh, he said, I used to be very involved in church. Turns out that that's how he knew the bride and groom. They'd all been to the same church together in the past. Then he explained to me how he'd become totally disillusioned because of the leadership in that church. And he drifted away from church, and now, to use his words, I don't trust the God who allows Christian leaders to treat people the way they treated me and others. You see, he'd he'd given up following Jesus because of Christian leadership. 
And Jesus says of those who do that, halfway through verse 42, it would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round their neck. These are such strong words. Jesus says, don't do anything to cause others to fall away from me. Jesus says, this is so serious that if you were to do that, you should be thrown to the bottom of the sea with a weight attached around your neck so that you'll never float to the top again. Here is the most loving man who ever lived giving the most sternest of warnings. Again, know why. He says, these little ones, everyone who is mine, I care for deeply. You have no right to do anything other than welcome them. You certainly have no right to be driving them away because of your heavy-handed pride. And so he continues, verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Here then is why this comes with an 18 certificate. Jesus speaks of gouging out our eyes and severing our limbs. It's like something out of a chamber of horrors. But the reason Jesus says it is hell is a real place and you don't want to go there. Do anything to avoid going there. With such graphic image, let's not lose what What's going on here? Jesus is warning us to, to go to extreme lengths to ensure that we do nothing that might cause others to fall away from him. He says take drastic action to, accord, to cause others falling away because that will then mean there will be judgment upon you. Now, As we consider what these words mean for us, listen to these words from the authors of this book, Andrew Satchin and Tim Horns. I think the quote will come up on here. Sometimes people rush to reassure us that this is only figurative, and in some ways they're right. Jesus is not expecting Christians to perform literal amputations, but it's a mistake to equate figurative with unreal. It's possible to use metaphor to speak about reality. And if Jesus chooses scary metaphors, it's surely because he wants to warn us of a scary reality. So yes, Jesus is not telling us to literally chop off our hands or gouge out our eyes, yet he is telling us to take drastic action to avoid causing other Christians to turn away from Jesus. What would this look like? I've tried to think of a few things this week, but how about this? If you're, if you're tempted to write an angry email or post an aggressive tweet, Jesus says chop off your hands so you can't type it. Think twice before you post on social media, is what he's saying. If you're unable to exercise that kind of self-control, cut social media out of your life. You're a Christian. People know you're a Christian. So think about the impact that your words will have on others through what you type with your hands. Cut it off. Here's the next uh, way we might apply it. If in a pit of feet, a fit of a fit of peak. I'll get it right in a minute. If you're angry, um, and um, if you, you know, if in your pride you're tempted to, 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 to walk round to someone to, to give them a piece of your mind and, and tell them what you think of them, chop your leg off, says Jesus. 
so that you can't walk around there. Of course, he's not saying, show restraint, don't go, stop yourself. Don't hurt another little one that they might walk away from me. And if you read things that, that you know, have this impact on making you proud and aggressive, gouge out your eye, he says, so you can't read those things. Stop subscribing to that blog or, or stop being part of that social media group that unhelpfully feeds your pride or unhelpfully you know, gives you the permission to speak angrily. There's a lot of that around on social media, isn't there? Stop it. Take drastic action to ensure that you don't cause others, little ones, other Christians, to fall away from Jesus. Rather, verse 37, we should be those who welcome little ones. Now look, there's a few examples in your uh, times in small groups as you study this together in a couple of weeks' time. Think through what it will mean to, to cut off hands and legs and gouge out eyes and then make sure that we put this into practice. For now, you know, if you're anything like me, as I've been reading this this week, there's a good chance you'll feel really concerned. As I've studied this week, I found myself testing my heart, thinking back about times when, when perhaps I've been the reason people have walked away from Jesus. And if I've done that, I want to say publicly, I want to repent of that. And if, like me, you feel that you might have failed in this, then these words are terrifying. Does this mean I'm going to face the judgment of God one day for what I've done? Well, no, remember the gospel. Remember verse 31. No need to go back to it, but remember it. Jesus, the Son of Man, was going to go to the cross to die for our sin, to bring forgiveness. And that death on the cross brings forgiveness for everything. Jesus' death does save us from the hell that he warns us of in verses 43 to 48. That's the gospel we know. So don't doubt your salvation, but do make sure that you repent of that and, and change. You see, it'd be very easy, wouldn't it, at this point, to be kind of concerned, well, have I done this? Am I going to face judgment? Oh, no, the gospel forgives me. Oh, well, then that doesn't matter. No, no, no. Make sure you change. And that's what Jesus deal, deals with in the last couple of verses. The third point. Salt. Cherish gospel peace with everyone. It'll come up in a moment. There we are. You see, this is the point as we come to these last verses, verses 49 and 50. It would be very easy to read this warning about hell to be concerned for it, and then to say, oh no, the gospel forgives me for that, therefore I don't need to change. No, no, you do need to change. And that's what Jesus is dealing with here. Jesus is saying in verses four, these are difficult verses, but I'll, I'll explain the big point, and then hopefully you'll stay with me as I explain the detail. Jesus says, take a good hard look at your heart. He says, judge yourself. Let me read verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with each other. <laughs> What's all this salty talk? Now look, these verses are not straightforward. I don't claim to have the final word on them, but let me tell you how I think they work. They're not that complicated, as long as you remember that salt in the Bible is about judgment. Just think about Lot's wife. She was turned into a pillar of salt as a judgment on her, okay? So think salt and judgment, salt and judgment. 
So Jesus says, verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. That is, everyone will be judged by fire. Well, he's just been talking about judgment, hasn't he? The judgment of hell. Now, he says in verse 50, judgment is good. Well, of course, it is good. Like salt, salt is a good thing. Judgment is a good thing. Why is judgment good? Well, if we want justice to be done, then, then we need to have judgment. But here's the specific thing he's talking about judgment. He says, be someone who self-assesses, who judges yourself. He's talking here about that healthy and, and helpful act of, of judging yourself and looking honestly in your heart and life. It's a good thing to do that. But verse 50, just as salt is useless if it's no longer salty, so failure to be in this habit of rightly judging yourself makes you useless. Just think of those people who've got out of the habit of healthy self-assessment. Those people who seem to be unable to look honestly at their own lives. Those who, who never seem to see their own faults. They're unbearable. People who think so highly of themselves that they can't see their mistakes and can't see how their bombastic pride hurts other people. People who think they're right about everything. Jesus says, when people have lived like that for years, verse 50, how can you kind of make them salty again? How can you help them to return to a pattern of regular, healthy self-assessment? So he says, don't become like that. It is very dangerous to get to that point where you're no longer able to look at yourself with sober judgment. So Jesus says, verse 50, have salt in yourself. Make sure you do judge yourself, examine yourself, see yourself as you really are. Daily come to the cross and see that you're a sinner. And that, end of verse 50, is how to be at peace with each other. It's what we've just been thinking about all the way through this, these, these verses. Honest self-reflection in the light of the cross leads me to be at peace with you. Because when I don't think I'm great, I'll treat you properly. I won't put you down. I certainly won't push you away or see you as a threat if I'm not trying to be the greatest all the time. I'll do everything I can to welcome you. I'll want to serve you. And we'll live at peace. And if we all live like that, what a community we'd be. And if we live like that, welcoming everybody in, not only will we be a great community, but if we live like that with other gospel workers as well, that's the way to extend the kingdom of God as we work together, seeing everyone else is working, every other Christian is valuable, pulling together to turn around the desperate state in this land of uh, gospel decline and seeing gospel growth. Let's pray together. Our Father, these are hard words to hear, but we thank you for them. We thank you that you want to help us to address our hearts and the great problem of pride. We pray that we would come regularly, if not daily, to the cross, where we know that um, there's no place for being proud, but where we also know that we're totally accepted by you. And we pray that would change dramatically the way that we not only view ourselves, but the way we view others and, and treat others. And so increasingly we ask that here in this church family, we might be those who have healthy self-assessment, meaning that we live at peace with one another, and meaning that this community is a great place to be, where people get a welcome and brought into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.